With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 442. It's titled, Crisis-Proof Investing, Strategies for a Shaky Future. I recently received a question from a member of Money for the Restless Plus, our premium membership community. He is looking ahead 40 years and trying to figure out how to invest in an era where on one side, there's the potential catastrophic impact of climate change, and on the other, the potential catastrophic impact of a consumption disaster from attempts to cut carbon emissions, either through regulation or through personal choice. This member owns his primary residence. He's based in Canada. He's in his early 40s. High net worth individual, has a sizable whole life insurance policy, his own business, and a large stock portfolio. 40 years is a long time. 40 years from now is the year 2063. I'll probably be dead. I hope not. My kids will hopefully still be alive. One of the early renditions of Money for the Rest of Us that I launched in 2012 was called The Next 40 Years. It was a website about a 40-year time horizon and figuring out how to invest and save for retirement over that time period. The website lasted about two months and I shut it down. 40 years ago, I was in high school. One of my teachers, who was well ahead of her time, decided she wanted to have a class to discuss the future. She invited 10 students to participate in this semester-long class. I agreed to attend, and we spent a number of months discussing Alvin Toffler's book, The Third Wave. This was a book over 400 pages long, published in 1980, and it was about the future. The first wave being the agricultural revolution. The second wave, the industrial revolution. And the third wave, the information revolution. Back in high school, I didn't understand much of the book. In fact, I found it was boring. As did the other students. We spent a lot of time playing Boggle, the word game, during class, although we had some meaningful discussions about the future and what was going on in, in the early 80s. Forty years later, as I read the book, I was amazed how much more clear it was. Toffler wrote, The third wave brings with it a genuinely new way of life based on diversified renewable energy sources, on methods of production that make most factory assembly lines obsolete, on new non-nuclear families, on a novel institution that, that might be called the electronic cottage, and on radically changed schools and corporations of the future. Above all, the third wave civilization begins to heal the historic breach between producer and consumer, giving rise to the prosumer economics of tomorrow. Prosumer is a word Toffler made up. It means consumers who produce or do a lot more things for themselves in terms of productions. And that's where he talks about methods of production that could make factory assembly lines obsolete. He felt that we would have much more leisure time, 
And given the cost of services to produce things that we would produce more and more as the work week got shorter. He gives the example of a dress pattern where the prosumer would buy a cassette tape with a program that would drive a smart electronic sewing machine. Even the clumsiest house husband, he wrote, with such a cassette could make his own custom fitted shirts. Mechanically inclined tinkers could do more than tune up their autos. They could actually half build them. As with most long-term predictions, 40-year predictions, there was an element of truth. The rise of YouTube means we can do more things for ourselves if we choose to do them. But we're not. We're buying more and more things. In the U.S., the population has increased 60% since 1970 yet we consume 400% more than we did back then. I saw a study by Pitney Bowes that showed over the last five years, this would be through 2021, global parcel volume, the amount of packages shipped, increased at 20% annualized rate. 159 billion parcels were shipped in the 13 markets that they track in 2021. That's 5,000 parcels every second, 436 million parcels moving through the system each day. That's 66 parcels per person per year coming to their house. 166 parcels per household. That's on average three or four arrivals of packages via UPS, FedEx, Amazon, delivery per week per household. Three to four packages. We can compare that to India, only two parcels per person per year versus 66 per person per year in the U.S. And surprisingly, 77 parcels per person delivered per year in China. Back in the year 2000, the United States Postal Service shipped 2.4 billion packages. Last year, it was 7.2 billion. We're not making more things at home. We're buying more and more things, and the volume is increasing. Now, Toffler felt that we would be working less. In fact, women are working more. 57% of women are working versus 51% in 1980. In men, the percentage has dropped, so it's gone from 78% down to 68%. In the United States today, the average worker is working about the same as they were 40 years ago about 1,800 hours annually today versus about the same back in 1980, 40 years ago. In Sweden, an example that Toffler gave was working less and less, fewer hours back in 1980. They're actually working more hours today, 1,520 hours in 1980 and over 1,600 hours today. Now, other countries are working less today than they were back in 1980. But that, that prosumer Having more time to make things, they're not. And in many cases, they don't have more time. One of Toffler's other predictions was that we wouldn't need secretaries, administrative assistants to type for us, that we would be able to just dictate whatever we said and send it off electronically. Partially right. It didn't free up enough time. The ease of sending email, which he alluded to in his book, has led to 28% of people's workday is spent reading and answering email. According to McKinsey, that's about 2.6 hours a day on email, 120 messages per person. 
he mentioned this electronic cottage, which essentially was work from home. And more and more individuals are doing that, but they're not working less. At least in the U.S., they're working about the same. He was correct about an energy transition, but he felt that oil prices would spike because there would be a shortage. In fact, the idea of peak oil shortages, that's been predicted many, many times. Toffler wrote, whether the end comes in oil in some climatic gurgle or more likely in a succession of destabilizing shortages, temporary gluts and deeper shortages, the oil epic is ending. Iranians know this, Kuwaitis, Nigerians, Venezuelans know it, petroleum companies know it, which is why they're scrambling to diversify out of oil. One president of a petroleum company told me at dinner in Tokyo not long ago that in his opinion, the oil giants would become industrial dinosaurs as the railroads have. His time frame for this was breathtakingly short, years, not decades. That hasn't happened. There is an energy transition. Toffler felt that the relative price of oil would continue to climb higher and higher. In fact, the real price of oil, after adjusting for inflation, is lower today at $81 a barrel than it was back in the early 80s when it was over $95 a barrel adjusted for inflation. There isn't an oil shortage. At times, there's a glut, and that's because of technology has allowed greater access to oil through horizontal drilling, fracking, better determination where there are oil deposits. Total amount of oil produced has increased by two-thirds between 1995 and 2019. And we have not, despite more renewables, our primary energy supply around the world is still heavily dependent on fossil fuels. 80% in the U.S., 90% in Japan. Overall, the world's dependent on fossil fuels has gone, in the last 20 years, has gone from 87% down to 85%. Even though renewable energy has increased 50 times. Even with the renewables, some of the technology used to generate electricity, such as steam turbines, that was invented back in 1884. The gas turbines was deployed commercially in 1938. And so as I, I think about this 40-year, looking back 40 years, looking ahead 40 years, life isn't that different today than it was 40 years ago. And I thought about this as I was, we were in Spokane, Washington. I was walking in the neighborhood on the south side of Spokane. Many of the houses were built in the 20s, beautiful homes. And there was still a lot of cement being used, a lot of oil, gas. We're still eating basically the same food. If someone time-traveled 40 years, it wouldn't be that different. And my sense is, if we look 40 years ahead, it won't be that different. Things take a while to develop. Now, there's been times when we consider the world of 1880 versus 1920, or 1920 to 1960, but from 1980 to 2020, it hasn't changed. And part of it is because the scale is so much greater. With 8 billion people, there are so many people and the world is so increasingly complex that it's not easy to have a major transition. For example, 4 billion tons of cement are produced each year, 2 billion tons of steel, much of it to build out the developing world. If we look at per capita power consumption in developed markets, 
it's basically plateaued at about 8.2 megawatt hours per person. And that's going back to 2005. So our use of energy is more efficient, even though it's still highly dependent on fossil fuel. But if we compare that to developing world, they're using 2.7 megawatt hours per person. That's up from 1.5 megawatt hours per person in 2005. I don't think the developing world will get up to 8.2 megawatt hours per person. Hopefully, those two numbers, the developed world and the developing world, have come closer. But clearly, there will be more demand per person for energy, much of which will continue to come from oil and natural gas and coal, unfortunately. Last year, we did an episode on population. The population is a little easier to predict because it's based on fertility rates today. With 8 billion people living on the earth today, that's expected to be 9.7 billion in 2050 and 10.4 billion in 2100. So not only will the developing world get more populated, even though areas of the developed world will see their population stagnate, the demand for these big things that we need, oil, cement, fertilizer, that will continue to put pressure on the world's resources and lead to the continuation uh, of rising world temperatures. If we look at, and this is prepared by NASA, the average annual temperature across the world today, and then going back compared to the long-term average from 1950 to 1980, that average temperature has increased Pretty much every year, the world is getting hotter. And because of that climate change, there's more variability. We get greater extremes, like the extreme heat we're seeing this year. But we also see extreme flooding events, because warmer air can hold more more moisture in clouds, which increasingly dump records amount of rain in records amount of time. The understanding uh, of climate change and global warming is not new. Scientists understood the mechanics of it back in the late 19th century. But there's been a collective reluctance to take action. We as humans have a status quo bias. We don't like to make changes. There's a level of inertia. We can see that recently in the controversy regarding congestion pricing in New York. The Federal Highway Administration just approved that Manhattan could charge higher fees to enter Manhattan south of 60th Street, depending on whether it's rush hour or not. Proposals are $23 for a rush hour trip to $17 during off-peak hours, and the idea is it would raise a billion dollars a year to go toward mass transit, maintaining the subway system in New York. After the approval, New Jersey, the state of New Jersey, filed a lawsuit Trying to stop it, Governor Phil Murphy of New Jersey, who is Democrat, said the bottom line is that we have to put our foot down to protect New Jerseyans. We're not going to allow this poorly designed proposal to be fast-tracked. There is a reluctance to change. There is a reluctance to be inconvenienced. And so as we look out 40 years, given the demands of a growing population, the demands of a highly complex system, Using technology, in many cases, decades, if not over almost a century old, to produce energy, despite renewables on the margin, the mass is so big 
that we're unlikely to see massive change when it comes to combating climate change, which will impact investing, as I'll get to in a moment, which was this member's question. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Teams buried in manual work, taking forever to close the books. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,025-1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down cost. One, because your business is one of a kind, so you can get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. I know in our business, we've seen having the key information is critical to making better decisions. And NetSuite can help make that possible for you. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com david. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com david. That's linkedin.com david to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Now, there are pockets uh, where there is extreme temperatures that it impacts economic output. I saw an article in the Wall Street Journal focusing on businesses in the Houston area that have had very, very hot summer, 90 days of 100 degree plus temperatures. And you can see it in the work hours that small businesses, employees that work for small businesses in Texas, in tourism, arts and entertainment are working fewer hours this summer versus prior years. Businesses are seeing fewer people come and go out to eat. They're staying at home because it's so unpleasant hot. But that means it's more pleasant somewhere else where it's usually maybe colder this time of year. And so the, the, the economic impacts and including from disasters can, it will impact local regions. But when we talk about investing, we're talking about global investing. Will climate change impact global investing? The uncertainty is, should we change how we invest if we're looking out 40 years? And in some ways, no, because given the population will continue to increase, 
given technology will continue to evolve, allowing for workers to become more productive, given there continues to be demand to purchase goods and services, as we've seen, 400% increase in demand for goods in the U.S. in the last 50 years, human nature doesn't seem to be changing, despite the risk of climate change, which means corporate profits in aggregate will continue to grow. And corporations will continue to pay a share of those corporate profits and dividends. So that dividends and that dividend growth will lead to increases in the stock market. Over time, just like we've seen over the past 40 years, the base case is that will continue. Now, there's been challenges in terms of, well, how do stockholders see the climate risk of the individual companies? The SEC last year announced that companies were going to have to start reporting or estimating their direct greenhouse gas emissions. That would be scope one emissions, as well as indirect greenhouse gas emissions from purchasing electricity. And then scope three, which would be emissions from their suppliers. There was a lot of pushback to that by businesses, saying that it's too difficult to calculate. We're not going to be able to do it. We're double counting. That includes companies like Exxon and Walmart have fought the reporting requirements. And as a result, individual investors try to figure out, well, who's at risk from climate change and to what extent they have a hard time to do that because companies are reluctant in many cases to report it or the risk models they're using aren't adequate. And they will be impacted somehow. We don't know how severe, but in aggregate across thousands of companies across the world, unless we hit some type of global tipping point, a major, major catastrophe. Life 40 years from now won't be that different today. It'll be warmer and there will be pockets of suffering, clearly. But in aggregate, things will probably be better than they are today, hopefully, in terms of quality of life and well-being. And that doesn't mean we can ignore the human suffering. But we have to be frank. Collectively, the world seems reluctant to act, to implement a carbon tax, to change consumption habits. But that doesn't absolve us from our own personal responsibility. On average, four packages per household per week. I, th I think about that a lot at our cabin in Idaho because the UPS driver visits some of our neighbors four times a week. And it's a good six miles out of the way to drive up into the little mountain subdivision to drop off a package. UPS driver's showing up at 7 o'clock. He's at the end of his route. The last thing he wants to do is to drive six miles out of the way on bumpy dirt roads to deliver a package. So we just try not to, to order anything that will be delivered to our house because I don't want to tick off the UPS driver. So we can, we can take personal responsibility to reduce consumption. It's not happening collectively, at least what we've seen in the last 40 years when climate change has been well known and even before that. Saw a report, a book coming out called Wasteland. It was profiled in GQ talking about donations of used clothes. 10 to 30% of secondhand clothes donations that, that go to a secondhand store, only 10 to 30% are resold. A lot of it gets destroyed or it's getting sent to the Southern Hemisphere. 62 million tons of clothing is manufactured every year. That's about 80 to 150 billion garments per year. When there's only 8 billion people we're making 10 to 20 times that amount of clothing each year, and we're, we're drowning in clothes. 
And yet the buying continues, despite everything we know about climate change. So when we think about investing for the next 40 years, how do we invest? Generally investing like we're already investing the last 40 years, primarily in stocks, because as earnings grow, dividends grow, the stock market will appreciate. We'll get new technologies that will increase productivity. We'll have cash flow. We'll have cash flow growth. We do need to, to diversify. I use an asset garden approach with a large variety of asset types, including portfolio hedges. No, we shouldn't put all of our money in gold, thinking we're going to get some type of huge catastrophe. But I have 5% in gold. 5% in cryptocurrency, own land, maybe we'll get a huge catastrophic tipping point with the climate. In all likelihood, though, we're going to be somewhere in between catastrophe and the techno-optimist. AI is not going to save us, a topic we discussed in episode 439. It's a fascinating technology. It helps us be more productive, as I discussed, which could increase corporate profits, we don't know who those will accrue to, hopefully across the entire economy. But last week, Sam Altman and Alex Blania announced something called WorldCoin, where they're building this database. They hope to get 8 billion user, users to get their irises scanned to be able to prove they're a human because the fear is AI will get so smart that we won't be able to tell who is human or not. It seems unlikely. Just given what I have learned about AI, and, and certainly people much, much smarter than that, Yan Li Kun, who is Meta's chief AI scientist, has said that large language models like ChatGPT will never achieve real understanding on their own, even if trained from now until the heat death of the universe. It's just not how they're made up. Emily Bender, a Computational linguist at University of Washington describes GTP as a stochastic parrot. It's a word predictor, as I've used in the past. But as Sam Altman points out, that's what our own brain does. It can make predictions, long-term predictions, as we've seen with Toffler. Some can be correct, some can be wrong. But there are emergent properties that can come if something's very simple. And that's AI is amazing. But it is not going to solve climate change. And while it can help us be more creative and productive, it's not going to totally change the world. Just like in some ways the internet, we still need steel. We still need cement. We still need oil and natural gas and coal to build houses, to grow food, the basics. The entertainment options are so much greater today. The ability to learn and grow and read, the ebooks, the internet. And now AI is absolutely amazing. But given the scale of what underpins the global economy and the complexity, it's not going to be completely transformed by AI in the next 40 years. So we should continue investing like we have been investing. Long-term, diversified, some hedges, primarily cash flow generating assets. But what we can do is increase our flexibility our spending flexibility, keep our debt balances low, live in a way that we can adjust if our income changes or if there is some type of catastrophic tipping point. Because there will be at local levels in some areas, less likely globally, but certainly some areas or even in our own family. We lose our job. There's a flood. There's an earthquake. 
and we need to have that margin of safety, that savings, that emergency savings, perhaps emergency food supply, not be so constrained that we can't cut our spending and survive without defaulting on debts. So we can build in the flexibility and we can decide personally what we feel morally responsible to do regarding consumption and contributing to climate change, particularly if we're in a country where we're overconsuming relative to the rest of the world. But looking out the next 40 years, globally, we'll continue to change gradually. We'll muddle through. There'll be local tipping points, war, disaster. But the idea of a techno-optimistic future where it's going to be the singularity or the world is going to completely collapse and we'll be back living like the 19th century just seems incredibly unlikely. And we shouldn't invest based on that. We should invest in a diversified way, but make sure that we've built in our personal resiliency and flexibility for whatever may come. The next 40 years, in some ways, will be a lot like the last 40 years. That's episode 442. Thanks for listening. I have loved teaching you about investing on this podcast for over nine years. Some topics, though, are just better explained in writing or with a chart. And that's why we have a weekly free email newsletter, The Insider's Guide. In that newsletter, I share charts, graphs, and other materials that can help you better understand investing. It's some of the most important writing I do each week. That's why I spend a couple hours on that newsletter on Wednesday morning, as I try to share something that will be helpful to you. If you're not on the list, please subscribe. Go to moneyfortherestofus.com to subscribe to the free Insider's Guide weekly email newsletter. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.